We now turn to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue our examination of 1 Corinthians. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 10 through 16 this morning. This is the word of the Lord as he inspired Paul to write. So we've had the privilege of singing his inspired word. Now we get to read it and hear it exposited. So we read now 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. As the Lord inspired Paul to write this, we know it as his very word, and so let's attend with reverence to its reading. Again, 1 Corinthians seven ten through 16. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but the Lord has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's briefly come before him in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your written word, and we do ask now that you would bless not only its reading, but its exposition and its hearing, that we might all the more be built up after the image of Christ as we seek to learn and abide by your word. So we pray that you would convict us in heart, that your Holy Spirit would guide us And that nothing that I teach here today would be contrary to what you are saying in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We might recall from the first verse of chapter 7, if you were here uh, last time, that Paul is in the midst of answering some questions the Corinthian Christians had concerning marriage and singleness. You also should remember that we have surmised from Paul's answers to those questions. We don't have the questions themselves, but we can tell from his answers something about what the questions were. And we can can surmise that some people were advocating for maybe general celibacy among Christians, that believers should refrain from those things which are appropriate even in a marriage. And they would say it is good for a man not to touch a woman. When the first nine verses we saw last time, uh, Paul taught that, yes, it is good for an unmarried man not to touch a woman, and it would be wonderful if all unmarried Christians were as self-controlled in such matters as Paul himself was. He said that would be great. And you would have opportunity, and we'll see this exposited even further later in the chapter, Uh, you have more opportunity to serve the Lord in your singleness. 
However, God has not given that gift to everyone. Indeed, marriage and singleness are both gifts from God. They are each blessings from the Lord for those to whom he has given those gifts. So another part of Paul's answer was, it is not good for a married man to refrain from touching his wife. The married Christian is commanded not to deny the marital rights of his wife or her husband. Paul goes so far as to say the wife's body is not her own, it actually belongs to her husband, and the husband's body is not his own, it actually belongs to his wife. So then, picking up after that, in today's passage, Paul offers some further counsel for married believers. Uh, These are things that all of us, whether we're married or not, can encourage and support in our married brothers and sisters. The main point of the passage is this. God's intent for marriage is that one husband remain with his one wife and that the one wife remain with her one husband. His intent for marriage is that it is one man and one woman married to one another for life. Some teachings accompany that. We see several teachings that accompany that fact here. Really four main ones here. Uh, Number one, marriage has a sanctifying effect when it involves a believer. Number two, divorce is allowed when adultery has occurred. It's not commanded, but it is allowed. Uh, Three, the unbelief of one spouse is not grounds for divorce. But number four, abandonment of the believing spouse by the unbeliever uh, is lawful grounds for the divorce. That would mean uh, that you are free. If you're a believer and your unbelieving spouse left you, you would not be considered bound to that marriage. But let's begin with the main point of the passage. The grammar leads us to focus first on verse 16, where Paul says, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? So remember that uh, that uh, word for, when it's used as a conjunction, is a good clue to us that that's probably a, a focus for a particular passage or it's answering a particular statement or question that was uh, placed before. It's telling us that that the reason the last thing I said is true is because this is true. And so that often can bring our focus to bear as a good jumping off point for a passage. In verse 16, we see here this jumping off point. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Before we get into the specifics of that verse, we're drawn back to verse uh, verse 1, or back to the, or the verse rather that begins the discourse. Here it's really verse uh, 9, or verse 10 rather. Uh, now to the married, so excuse me, verse 10, now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. So putting those two verses together, the verse that uh, that starts this discourse here, and then the verse that concludes it, we see uh, that Paul is reinforcing a concept which is clear throughout the whole Bible. God's intent for marriage is that the one husband remain with his one wife as long as the two shall live. Yes, he mercifully overlooked uh, departures from that at times in Scripture. But don't think for one second that just because Jacob had more than one wife that God blessed that fact. His, out of his grace, 
he did give blessings to Jacob despite his multiple marriages. But you'll remember that in Genesis, he doesn't create a man and six women, right? He creates a man and one woman. That's the marriage that God created. God's intent for marriage is that one husband remain with his one wife as long as the two of them live. We see this in Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Matthew 19.3-6, we read, The Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? I could stop there and say that's a good lesson for the culture today. Where we've gotten far beyond the notion of redefining marriage or even redefining our gender or sexuality. That we're no longer supposedly a a binary species. (laughs) No. God made us male and female. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus there puts the word two in there. We're talking about two people. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The principle there is that if God joins a man and a woman in marriage, then it's a really unwise thing, to say the least, for man to think we have the prerogative to separate that. In Malachi 2, 14-15, we read earlier today, the, the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Along with that principle, along with that understanding that God's intent for marriage is that one man would be married to one woman for life. They would remain together as long as they're both alive. We see four related points here. That I mentioned earlier. The first one is marriage has a sanctifying effect. We find that here clearly in this passage. Again, verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And of course, Paul is not saying that, that somehow we actually enact salvation for one another, but, but we know that God uses means. Christ is the Savior, but he uses means of the preaching of the gospel, for example, by Christians to others to bring his elect into the church. Here, we, we know from various other scriptures that God's command for believers is that if they marry, we're supposed to marry another believer. As we see it, we'll see that, in fact, later in this chapter where he's talking to widows, and he said, you, know, you are free to marry again as long as it's in the Lord. Right? You, can, you have to marry in the Lord. You marry another Christian. But sometimes Christians ignore that, They overlook that command. But more pointedly, in the context of the first century Corinth, where people were living when Paul wrote this letter to them, there there would have been a lot of new adult converts. 
So you have married couples already, and maybe the husband becomes a believer, but the wife doesn't. Or maybe the wife becomes a believer, but the husband doesn't, at least not as yet. There were people whose husbands or wives were, at this point, unconverted to Christ. Unbelieving Jews who rejected the gospel, or pagans. And Paul says, the Christian spouse in such a marriage may actually be God's means of getting the unbelieving spouse to believe. We don't have a list of who God's elect are. We don't know who's going to be saved. So we we have to be like the sower in the parable of the sower. We we don't scatter the seed just where we think there's cultivated ground. We, We throw it everywhere. And yes, some of it will land on the path and be trodden underfoot, and some will be choked by thorns and thistles. Some will land on stony ground and not take root. But some will land on fertile ground. You don't know where the fertile ground is, so scatter the seed everywhere. Paul says, if you are a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, you have no idea when the Lord might choose to use that to convict your spouse and bring him or her to Christ. Indeed, indeed, there's some sense in which the unbelieving husband is actually set apart from the world by the fact that he has a believing wife. And the unbelieving wife is set apart by virtue of being married to a believing husband. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Being married to a believer does not save a person. It doesn't save the unbeliever, but it does set him or her apart in some way from the world. Enough, at least, to enough of a degree that the children of such a marriage are considered holy, Paul says. They're set apart from the world, clearly, as part of the visible covenant people of God by virtue of having a believing parent. As we noted back on October 23rd, when we were having a baptism, two baptisms. Actually, this, this is part of our reasoning as to why we baptize covenant children, the children of a believing father or mother. They are in the visible covenant people and are thus entitled to the sign of being in the visible covenant people. Remember from Malachi 2.15 that part of God's intent for marriage is that a godly offspring would be raised up for him. But the point here is that marriage, when it involves a believer, does clearly have some sanctifying effect. Not a justifying effect. It doesn't save automatically, but it does have a sanctifying effect. It sets the spouse apart in some way. Secondly, we see that divorce is allowed when adultery has occurred. This is and God not speaking of what he intends for marriage in general, but his accommodation to the fact that we live in a broken world under his curse for sin and that we ourselves are sinners. Divorce is allowed when adultery has occurred. In such cases, the aggrieved spouse, the one whose husband or wife was unfaithful, may, you don't have to, but may consider himself or herself free to leave the marriage. Again, notice I said may. Uh, The spouse who has been sinned against is allowed to divorce, not commanded to. Paul says in verses 10 and 11, Now, the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, 
A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So there again, we see the principle, the general principle is don't divorce, right? By saying not I but the Lord, Paul is the is reminding the Corinthians there that this is something Jesus taught during his earthly ministry. This is not something new. It appears that some believers were leaving their unbelieving spouses. Paul says that's inappropriate. He says, stay in your marriage. But if you are already apart, if you've already left, then either you reconcile with your spouse or you remain unmarried. That's what he says. Jesus teaches this plainly in Matthew 19. In verse 6 of Matthew 19, he says, What God has joined together, let not man separate. And verses 8 and 9 of Matthew 19, he says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. So in other words, this was not God's intent when he created marriage. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So adultery is one of the only two biblical grounds for divorce. And when we divorce except for that reason, we might be forcing adultery to happen. If one spouse is unfaithful to the other, the other, the one who has sinned against, may leave the marriage. Uh, this is permitted, Jesus says, because of the hardness of the human heart. Either because the one will not repent, or because the other may not be able to trust. And so because of human fallibility, God allows this, even though he says he hates it, Malachi 2.16, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. But he only allows divorce under certain circumstances. So he doesn't allow it just willy-nilly. That's uh, implied in the question of the Pharisees to Jesus. Is is it all right for a man to divorce his wife, as it was translated in the New King James there, for just any reason? Well, no. That was being taught by many of the Pharisaical teachers of that day, that that they would expand the biblical reasons Uh, for divorce, some of them even to such a degree as to say that if your wife burns your breakfast, well, you can divorce her. She displeased you. And Jesus says, no, no. There are only extreme circumstances under which God will allow this, and that's only because of the hardness of the human heart. Adultery is one of those circumstances. We'll see the other one here in a bit that is biblically allowed. But before that, Let's consider our third subpoint. The unbelief of a husband or wife is not grounds for the believer to seek a divorce. Verses 12 and 13. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Now we should take note that when Paul says, I, not the Lord, say this, 
He isn't saying that this isn't scripture. This part here is, the rest of it's been the Bible, but this part's the parenthesis here. That's not, no, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying this isn't my uninspired opinion. Rather, what he's saying is, before I told you something that you already know Jesus already said. So here's something Jesus did not teach openly during his earthly ministry, but I, as his apostle, am telling you now this is true. So what we read here is as much the word of God as anything else we've already read here. Again, we recognize that at the time in Corinth, some believers were married to unbelievers. And some of those believers apparently thought that the unbelief of her husband or his wife was a legitimate grounds to leave the marriage. My husband doesn't love Christ, so I need to depart from my husband. Paul says, no, that's not legitimate. Stay with your unbelieving spouse. If you've already left then live in celibacy or go back to the marriage. As we already saw, explains in verse 14 and 16, that, that being in a marriage to a believer has this sanctifying effect on the unbeliever. So stay, if for no other reason. Stay for that reason. It may even be God's providential means of getting the unbelieving spouse to believe in Christ. So he says the unbelief of a spouse is certainly not grounds for divorce. There are only two biblical grounds for divorce. We've seen one already, which is adultery. The other is related to it, and some would even argue that it implies that a sort of adultery is being forced into the situation and goes hand in hand with it. If your unbelieving spouse leaves you, it implies he's probably leaving you for someone else. Or, uh, In any case, it certainly goes hand in hand with Jesus' statement about divorce, except for sexual immorality. And that's our fourth related point, abandonment of a believer by an unbelieving spouse is legitimate grounds for divorce. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Again, you don't have to divorce, but you may. And here's where one where Paul just says, well, just let him go. If they're divorcing you, just let it. Let it happen. You're under no obligation to remain in a marriage with an unbeliever if the unbeliever is unwilling to stay, if the unbeliever has left. Paul connects this to the concept of peace. God, he says, has called us to peace. If the unbeliever finds marriage to a believer intolerable and leaves, it's an unpeaceful situation, right? The believer is not obligated to uh, break that peace and, and fight to get the unbeliever back. God has called us to peace. As Paul says in Romans twelve eighteen. if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. You can't control how peaceably other people are going to live. Right? So you must not instigate the departure, but if the unbeliever departs of his or, own, his or her own free will, God has called you to peace with that situation as well. Let him go, let her go. Now, uh, some will object and say, well, what about abuse? You're not saying anything there about abuse. And isn't that small-minded of the Bible not to think about abusive situations where life or health are in danger? Well, to that we answer, the Bible is God's word, and of course, it's not short-sighted. In fact, Careful consideration of Scripture, especially as we 
wrestle with the meaning of peace here uh, compels us to understand that uh, significant abuse as is in fact a form of abandonment. We're not talking here about just crying abuse because we're made to feel a little uncomfortable. Your husband or your wife is insensitive to you uh, or sometimes makes you somewhat uncomfortable. That's not abuse. But if the physical health or the life of one spouse is threatened by the behavior of the other, or if, we might say, a husband or wife realizes that in order to protect these children that God has given us, I have to get the children away from this other adult who is abusing them. Well, in in that case, in that kind of case, we recognize it's the abuse which drives the one spouse away, the one who's being abused or who's trying to to protect the children, who's being driven away by the abuse of the other, in which case the abuser is the one guilty of abandonment. For example, the wife-beater has forced his wife into a situation where for her own protection, she's going to have to put distance between herself and her husband. In such a case, he's guilty of abandonment. Not her, him. If, If he's a professing believer, he needs to repent of that sin. And if he doesn't repent, the church is to treat him like an unbeliever, in which case then the spouse who's been abandoned has the right to end that marriage. Or if he's not a professing believer, in either case, the victim is free to end such a marriage. That's the conclusion of the RP Synod in a nutshell, as I understand it, uh, as we've dealt with these things and and, uh, considered what is biblical abandonment. In a case either of adultery or abandonment by an unbeliever, the aggrieved believer is free from the bonds of that marriage. As if the sinning husband or wife were actually dead. So to recap, what we've learned here, our main point today is God's intent for marriage is that the one husband would remain with his one wife for life. That the one wife would remain with her one husband for life as long as they are both alive. So God's command to his people here is honor marriage. Stick to your wife if you're married, your man. If you're a married woman, stick to your husband. Honor the marriages of others. Encourage them to remain together. And don't place any stumbling blocks or temptations in their way. Marriage involving a believer actually has a sanctifying effect. So that's the second thing we learn here. The Bible commands that believers would marry believers... So this is not permission for what some have called missionary dating, right? Where, you know, the young lady, she's a Christian, and there's that guy she likes in college or whatever, but he's not really a believer. Maybe if she goes out with him, he'll go to church and he'll get saved. No, that's that's not, you can invite a friend to church, that's fine. Uh, But but don't be uh, taking steps toward what could become a marriage, with somebody who you don't know as a believer. This is not permission for that. But it is a reason for a believer who is already married to an unbeliever to stay in the marriage. 
God, in fact, commands that unless you have legitimate biblical grounds for divorce, that is not a grounds for divorce. Just saying, well, my husband doesn't believe in Jesus, so I can't stay married to him. No, that's not what God says. God allows divorce if your spouse has committed adultery. The unbelief of your spouse by itself is not grounds for divorce. But, God says, if your unbelieving husband voluntarily leaves, let him go. If your unbelieving wife voluntarily leaves, let her go. You're under no obligation to remain in that kind of marriage. And then you are free, as if your spouse were dead, to remarry. But, as Paul will say later in the chapter, only in the Lord. Recognize the sacred nature of marriage as God has created it. Be careful with it. Take care entering into it for those who are not yet married but might get married. Take very great care in entering into this covenant relationship. And take care not to rush out of it. Far too many young people these days rush into marriage and then rush out of it when they realize how hard it was and it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. So take care not to rush into it and then definitely don't rush out of it. God's intent for marriage is that a man remain with his wife for life and that a woman would remain with her husband as long as they both shall live. Well, let's pray. Lord, help us to honor marriage as you have created it and as you've commanded us to honor it, taking care to encourage your people to marry only within the covenant, grant that we may carefully handle divorce, knowing that there are legitimate reasons for it, but those reasons are few, that we may never support frivolous or illegitimate excuses for it, but that we would neither lay unbiblical burdens on one another to stay in marriages where The Bible says we are free. Let marriage, though, be held in honor by all. For we do pray in the name of the one who is the bridegroom of his bride, the church, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.